We acknowledge with respect the Onondaga Nation, firekeepers of the Haudenosaunee, the indigenous people on whose land Syracuse University now stands. May the information you glean from this podcast motivate you to uphold indigenous values, protect Mother Earth, and honor indigenous treaties. The doctrine of Christian discovery started in the Catholic Church. Its ramifications most popularly known in American government framework. But we should stop and ask ourselves, wasn't colonization across the entire Americas? Where did it also leave its stain? Welcome to the Doctrine of Christian Discovery. I'm Tanner Randall, your host from Good Faith Media. We're producing this podcast at the Religious Origins of White Supremacy Conference in December of 2023 at Syracuse University in New York. This year is particularly special because it's the 100th anniversary of Johnson v. McIntosh, the Supreme Court proceeding that installed the framework of the doctrine of discovery within American government. We will be talking about the different ramifications of the doctrine of discovery and how it led to indigenous values and land being stolen, as well as white supremacy and the general idea of revitalized indigenous culture. The doctrine of Christian discovery originating from the Vatican spread and infected every continent. Today, we'll be talking specifically about the Americas, focusing on Latin America and South America. Brazil, for example, colonized by the Portuguese, still has lingering effects from the colonization that took place years ago. We'll also talk about how Christian nationalism has infected a lot of the countries around Latin America and South America and caused extremism in different government frameworks. But why do we feel like this is still okay? Why do people still buy into these religions? Well, look no further than the doctrine of Christian discovery. We would like to thank our sponsors who made this podcast possible. Many thanks to the Henry Luce Foundation, Syracuse University, Indigenous Values Initiative, American Indian Law Alliance, American Indian Community House, Good Faith Media, Tanatiera, and Towards Our Common Public Life. We appreciate your support. I'm Tanner Randall with Good Faith Media. Our guest on this episode is Dr. Zhao Chavez. Zhao is a professor of religion at Baylor University in Texas. His focus is in the religion and the history of religion in the Americas, the influence of US Protestantism in Latin America, and the development of Latin America and Latina X religious networks in the United States. Dr. Chavez also has a particular interest in Brazilian government framework, and that will be a major topic of discussion today. Hi, I'm here with Joe Chavez, and we are talking about the history and implications of the doctrine of Christian discovery, uh, specifically in the Americas, with a particular focus in Latin America and South America. Um, to get started, um, this week at our conference, we are discussing the 200th anniversary of John C. B. McIntosh, the document that emplaced um, the doctrine of discoveries principles within the United States framework. But I'd like to pivot 
in our conversation of and subject area of this conference to something specifically related to South America or Latin America. Could you provide an example of the doctrine of Christian discoveries influence in these areas? And if it's in a government framework um, within the many countries in um, that region? Yeah, of course. Uh, uh, the, the doctrine of discovery in terms of the papal bull um, dealt directly with the Portuguese and Spanish uh, so um, uh, there's direct influence in, in my, my own country of Brazil, which um, has roughly half the area and half the population of South America. Um, and um, uh, it's, it's every, indigenous peoples in Brazil are still fighting um, issues related to um, the presumption of appropriation. Um, that came with the Portuguese and continued on uh, in, in many different governments. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, one very recent example uh, that, that happened in Brazil, but you can see some strong connections to that kind of dispositions, is uh, the, the controversy uh, on the, what in Brazil became known as the, the legislation called Marco Temporal, or Temporal Marker, in which... Um, the the um, some more conservative um, um, uh, groups in government wanted to say that uh, whichever indigenous land that had not been demarc demarcated before the constitution of Brazil was was promulgated. Um, it could no longer be demarcated for indigenous peoples, which, which was understood uh, by, by indigenous communities there as a pretext for further land appropriation. Uh, the, mm. Ultimately, um, the, the legislation was not implemented. Uh, it did not pass uh, the Supreme Court, but uh, it represents the kind of spirit that has been historically present in the history of Brazil and it continues in different ways, um, especially um, in terms of more contemporary Brazilian history in the Bolsonaro administration and, and what that have represented. Uh, but it has been uh, more deeply than that, a, a continuing legacy mm -hmm. um, of, of uh, Brazil since the Portuguese um, government or the Portuguese empire was there. As a matter of fact, Brazil is the one colony that housed the empire uh, when the whole court from Portugal fleeing uh, from Napoleon went to Brazil and established itself there. Um, mm. so, so you have even a, a, a very strong accents of that particular disposi disposition and presumption of ownership. Of yeah. those lands, it's it's interesting that you say um, you said that even though that uh, Marco Temporal was not implemented, I think it's important to realize that um, the spirit is still there, like you mentioned, and just having that image on a national level is so destructive to indigenous peoples because it puts out the framework that you know it may have not worked now, but it's something they're trying to achieve. So they may still keep trying to chip away at those indigenous rights. And so I'm curious to kind of um, ask you about what's the atmosphere around that issue? Are there being, are there improvements or they're still trying to encroach on indigenous land? Oh, most certainly, most mm -hmm. certainly. Um, and th there are 
many market forces uh, that uh, that also push those kinds of moves. In the Amazon, it, it might be uh, deforestation for land for cattle growing, for example. Um, it, it, it might be other ways of land appropriation that happen uh, in, in the Amazon. I mean, there are many different forces moving in the direction. And again, this is not new. It is, it is a struggle the indigenous people in Brazil have had for a long, long time. As a matter of fact, I was just in the Amazon in, in May um, and I had a few conversations with religious leaders in a new project that I'm working on. Um, and, and you can see how that kind of encroachment happens, uh, although um, it, it, is, it is complexified because evangelical Christians in Brazil have done uh, an effective job at recruiting some indigenous leaders to do part of that very work. Okay. Um, so, uh, so it is complex. It is not a black and white issue, but it is an issue and a mentality that uh, that is disseminated via different avenues, uh, including um, some indigenous Brazilians that uh, have, uh, or at least perform, um, a, a certain uh, disposition that uh, is similar to those uh, of, um, of, again, Brazilian evangelicals uh, and, and, and other forms of conservative Christianities, their recruitment and, and employed in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, of course, it's difficult always to make judgments about um, uh, where um, or to what extent we should um, account for um, um, local agency. Um, it, um, especially if you're not part of particular ethnocultural groups, but it's definitely a complex issue that continues to move on and includes also conservative-leaning native Brazilians um, and, and and other forces. So it's 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 not Autobot versus Decepticon, good versus evil, very clearly shown. <laughs> exactly um, as one would like to. Uh, as one would like to uh, to be, but it is more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. and, um, I think that it's it's always challenging for me to come to terms with the fact of like these evangelical or the evangelicalism converting indigenous peoples to Christianity and how that kind of promote can lead to the promotion of the doctrine of discovery. And so I'm kind of curious to hear your opinion on how uh, the it's sometimes uh, radicalized, or even on a uh, more nuanced level, how evangelicalism has affected uh, particularly Brazil in promoting the doctrine of discovery. Um, because I know in the United States that we had the assimilation school system, and I know some people will call them genocide schools mm -hmm. because there was so much cultural damage in the implementation of Christianity. And it almost led to kind of the acceptance of some of the things we see happening in American Indian uh, population. So if you could speak to that, I, I would appreciate it. Yeah. Well, let me step back a little bit and, and, and talk about uh, the form of evangelicalism that I think manifests the most clear disposition mm. of domination. And uh, it is the sort of conservative Southern evangelicalism that... Uh, that went to Brazil uh, in its sustainable phase and more explicitly with Confederate exiles who, upon losing the war here in the United States in 1865, fled to different places uh, 
where they could imagine um, would allow them to reconstruct the Old South. Brazil was one of those places, was the most prominent one. Uh, thousands of families, uh, southern families, went to Brazil because Brazil remained a slaveholding country for 23 years after the end of the Civil War. It was the last country in the Americas to abolish slavery. Wow, I no idea. <laughs> yeah, that, and, and it is in these Confederate enclaves uh, that we have Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist churches. Starting, it is the place that... Uh, that receives many pioneer missionaries that go from there into uh, the, the, uh, their evangelistic crusades in different parts of, of Brazil, um, and, uh, including the Amazon um, and, and other different places. Um, that, that genealogy uh, continues today. Those, those uh, uh, denominations, they build seminaries, um, and they they translate literature. They control um, mostly American missionaries. Uh, even when Brazilian legislation did not allow them to do that, they found ways to control publications. Um, and you can see those that transnational connection between U.S. forms of evangelicalism in Brazil um, going on uh, throughout um, over a century, and it continues today. Um, during the dictatorship, the dictatorship under which I was born uh, is a, a right-wing dictatorship that was U.S.-supported. Uh, you see a um, leadership, uh, a government that wants to suppress progressive forms of Catholicism, particularly liberation theologies. And part of that suppression included giving structural benefits to evangelicals who they saw as... Um, better transmitters of the kind of religious ideology that would help authoritarian governments thrive. Um, it is then that um, assemblies of God's uh, leaders and and uh, Baptist leaders, among others, uh, get concessions to have radio and television shows um, and, um, and gain other forms of governmental support. Um, uh, it is uh, um, also that coincides with increased urbanization that, uh, that accounts for the explosive growth of Protestantism in Brazil. Uh, uh, even when I was uh, growing in Brazil, I, I would not believe if someone would tell me that by uh, 2030 or 2033, Brazil was going to become a majority evangelical country, but we are on track to do that. Um, and, and, um, and part of that uh, story is also the kind of support that Protestants got from dictators during those times. And, and you see over and over again the kind of message of, of Christian superiority that is uh, not interested in ecumenical or interfaith conversations, is not interested in being welcoming to practitioners of Afro Brazilian religions or indigenous ways of being, and as a matter of fact, are the kinds of evangelicalism that support um, the very socially conservative dispositions that you see here. And one example, very recent, again, to go back to recent developments in Brazil, is the fact that Steve Bannon, who was a campaign uh, manager and advisor for Donald Trump, was also an advisor of the Bolsonaros. 
Um, you, and then you see insurrections going on here and insurrections going on there. You see denial of elections that do not go their way happening here, and you see those denials happening there. So uh, the kind of U.S.-Brazil relationship, uh, especially in terms of Christian conservative uh, networks, uh, is, uh, is a story with a long genealogy and continues today and continues to strengthen today. I'll just tell you one more story and I'll stop. Um, I, when I was there in May, one of the persons we interviewed was the the leader of the Evangelical Caucus in the Brazilian Congress, congressman. Uh, and, and during that conversation, he mentioned that he had uh, a, um, a meeting with the folks of, from Capital Ministries, you know, that, that, uh, that uh, also work here in Washington, D.C., uh, strengthening networks of uh, Theopolitical conservative conservatisms of different ways, and and they always uh, also uh, support those networks there. Um, so um, I'm not sure if that addresses your your concern directly, but I do want to highlight that these transnational conservative connections have a long history, and they continue to strengthen um, and they continue to organize. They are extremely well organized and are already organizing in the Brazilian case. I come back to the presidency, given that Bolsonaro mm -hmm. did not did not win um, his uh, his bid for re-election. It's, it's interesting because I, I did not know about the kind of way the United States uh, politics reflects Brazil's, and I think that we could learn a lot from dissecting both environments. It kind of it brings me to a, kind of a question of, and this is going to be a little bit of a two-part question. First is, you know, this you said that Brazil is on track to be majoritaire the a majority of evangelicals correct by 2030 um so how how did the christian religion spread so fast and was there an atmosphere ripe for people wanting some sort of institutionalized religion what is that kind of like because i know with indigenous peoples you'll hear some of the converts say um, we knew there was a, a great spirit out there, and Christianity contextualized our belief. Mm -hmm. um, and so they found great comfort in that. So tell me a little bit about that environment, and uh, I'll, I'll wait for my next question after this yeah. answer. Oh, that, 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 there are many answers to that question. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I will say a couple of things. One thing is, is that... Um, in the, in the case of Brazil, which was a predominantly Catholic country, um, it was not as much a—what uh, happened was not necessarily as much a move from non-organized religion to organized religion, mm -hmm. but rather from one organized religion to another. Um, part of that—of uh, of those—that um, um, uh, change, that shift— um, has been um, articulated as the crisis in uh, the Catholic priesthood, for example. There is not enough leadership, um, or, or, or Protestantism historically has capitalized on urbanization. Brazil mm. urbanizes very fast. Um, but then another, um, another point that uh, sociologists and scholars uh, of Brazilian religion have pointed out uh, is how the translatability of Pentecostalism works productively when it enters into conversation with Afro-Brazilian religions. Um, the, the, um, the, the, 
the growing edge of Christianity in Brazil today is Pentecostalism. And within Brazilian Pentecostalism, that is a very large um, um, a group, a very large number of Afro-Brazilians who join uh, that, uh, that group to the extent that as problematic as this saying might be, some Brazilian scholars would say that the blackest religion in Brazil is actually Pentecostalism, uh, rather than uh, the Afro-Brazilian religions that still remain a very important part of Brazilian life and culture. Um, so, um, uh, you know, con folks who study conversion, they, they often uh, um, talk about conversion as something that happens when there is a particular crisis of opportunity in, in the group that changes affiliation, right, or, or changes ideology, the kind of solutions that the group uh, entering or, or offering a new ideology has for the crisis or how that group can optimize the the, the those opportunities and then the the context in which that happens right mm -hmm. so um, um, th th when there is a align cultural alignment with a particular kind of ideology that is offered uh, the 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 probability of conversion of change of affiliation happens um, and, and and I think that in the case of Brazil urbanization the crisis in the priesthood from the Catholic Church the vernacular way in which Pentecostalism uh, develops that adapts itself very quickly to different uh, to, to, to different situations uh, certainly account for um, some of, of that shift um, because the, 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 the I mean it grew, Protestantism in Brazil and its different versions grew so fast that it, that is not just natality rate it's not just birth rate although mm -hmm. that is a very good predictor of religious growth um, there is a lot of conversion from Catholicism or from Afro-Brazilian religions to okay. Protestant streams also Interesting, because um, it's it's always different from country to country why a religion takes hold, and I think that it's really important to recognize, you know, whether it be a community that is disadvantaged, being susceptible for you know organizational help and leadership mm -hmm. and getting brought into religion, or if it's not as far as a transition as people think. Like you're saying, um, in Brazil, it was more of a Catholic uh, church to Protestantism. Um, which is, is rather natural, um, or not natural, that's not the correct word, but is um, an intuitive change that somebody could make. Um, and so I think that looking at, you know, whatever conversion it may be in whatever religion it may be converted to, um, and a lot of the times in what we're talking about in this conference is how that results in extremism and white nationalism mm -hmm. and things of that sort. And so I guess this is leading into my last question here of when you see religion of a person kind of bleeding into government structures, you know, it's one thing to say my life and decisions are based off of my own religional preferences. It's another to project those into a system. Mm -hmm. So what kind of mechanisms sh should we identify and try to correct within governments like that of Brazil and other in South America, or not correct, but be critical of and mm -hmm. be aware of in Brazil and other South American countries? Yeah. Well, I, I think that what we have in Brazil today in some ways, and in some ways in the U.S. too, are different and 
competing narratives for the future of the nation, right? So different stories about our present and different imaginations of what the future can be based on our understanding of the present. Perhaps my historian, uh, uh, my historian disposition takes over when I talk about those those myths. But I think they're important, um, and and part of what I see happening uh, in Brazil um, is pr precisely that. You you see uh, the on these Protestant groups that that are really important for some of these religious right networks. Uh, they they tell a particular story. Uh, about Brazil that mirrors some of the dispositions in terms of the doctrine of discovery. Um, and they want Brazil to become um, some sort of a Christian country. Right? So when you see uh, um, a, red, a big red flag uh, is when you see a particular group of people wanting the values and uh, the the, the particular interpretation of social life that that religion has or that version of that religion have then become the basis of the legislation for a whole nation. Mm. Um, and, and we certainly see that um, in this uh, conservative evangelical groups that are in coalition with conservative Catholic groups that want to have a particular view of what a family must look like, right? Mm -hmm. So what kind of marriages are we then going to allow? Uh, or they want to tell a particular story about the preeminence of the cultural superiority of Christianity and uh, the Anglo-European structures that were implemented into the country. Um, and if that is superior, then everything else is inferior, then, and, and which very much then informs how we're going to implement public education. We're having those battles about public education there, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right? Uh, and and uh, which then affect you know, the, the, the next generation's imagination of where they are and where, where they can be. So it, it, that, that is really a, a project of dominations that, over, that overlap uh, very significantly mm -hmm. with the kind of things that happen in the U.S. Legislation uh, based on particularly conservatively Christian dispositions that, uh, that uh, want to take the rights of minorities that do not fit a very narrow view of morality mm -hmm. and then want to uh, put educational structures that support a very limited imagination that then reproduces that kind of bias and 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 um, constraints that they defend. Mm -hmm. um, that that is happening there um, also. Uh, it, it because in, in terms of Brazil, particularly, um, the racial imagination is is significantly different than in the U.S. Um, it is uh, you, you often see um, broader ethno-racial representation defending those visions than you might see here. Um, okay. But, but, the, but the, the narrative is pretty similar. And I think that speaks to the continuous long-term connections between conservative networks uh, between these two countries that have uh, never really 
uh, not been a reality since uh, since Brazil began, and especially in the 1940s when the United States really invest in making Brazil a pro-U.S. culture, right? In what historian Antonio Tota called the seduction of Brazil, which was funded. Uh, to a great extent, by Rockefeller money, by Baptist money. Interesting. Right? Uh, so, I mean, there are many connections there that, uh, that, that could be teased out. But there is a, a, an intentionally maintained uh, transnational um, uh, project uh, uh, to the extent that somebody like Ben Cowan, a uh, historian at the University of California, uh, uh, calls um, the, you know, uh, the, the moral majority in his book, The Moral Majorities Across the Americas, the co-creation of the religious rights between Brazil and the U.S., that those countries co-create what we call the religious rights today, rather than the U.S. just creates it and imposes it. That, that, uh, Brazil is, a, is a, a very important part of the story, uh, serving uh, as w one of the places that need to be understood so that we can understand what's happening here, too. Right? So we cannot, uh, we cannot understand uh, the developments there without understanding what's happening here. But to a similar extent, uh, it's is difficult to understand what's happening in the U.S. without uh, paying attention to the role that Brazil has in this pan-American connection that is long-lasting. No, I think it's important to realize all of the countries within the Americas uh, originate from strikingly similar situations. Most of the populations were colonized. Most of them were subjected to a rule they didn't consent to. And then that rule was subject to extremism and caused violence. So I think it is important to understand that all of these environments grew up in uh, coexistence and influenced each other's behavior, and then once one had more money than the other, then they started flooding money to, you know, keep those systems in place. Right. Um, and so I think that it's interesting that, you know, all these kind of colonized entities grew up to be um, or have biased tendencies within their populations. But one of the subtle uh, aspects that you mentioned earlier that I thought was extremely interesting that I had never um, heard of before was the Confederate exiles to South America and the impact of that. And so I think that we should always be critical of kind of who is in an environment that can catalyze a lot of poor ideals. Um, and so I think that's important to realize. But during the 20th century, we saw a lot of um, different fascist regimes. Uh, the most pertinent one would be the Nazi regime in Germany. And once uh, that war ended, it almost seemed like we were going to champion a new environment of inclusiveness and try to create just governments. But then we start to see more of an appetite for oppressive, strongman countries to go and force their own policies onto smaller entities. So could you speak to um, why you think that there, or if there is a larger appetite for fascism, and why would that be uh, if there is? Yeah, well, that, that that's a good question. I mean, I, I, I again, I cannot help to to put my historian's hat and 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 uh, first mention that the, the democracy is a very early experiment, mm -hmm. uh, right? Um, it, uh, it it has not been the historical rule long term. Um, so um, um, 
and so I think that that's that's one thing to keep in mind. Another thing to keep in mind is that the upheavals in the 60s are already a response to the aspirations uh, that came after the war that remain unrealized, right? So you have uh, the, the United Nations and the World Council of Churches come together in about the same time, um, in, in some ways uh, demonstrating the aspirations of a more united world. But that united world uh, remained um, not um, uh, united against segregation in the U.S., against hunger, in Latin America, mm. against sexism everywhere, um, against homophobia everywhere, right? So the kind of uh, uh, aspirations that uh, post-World War II, uh, even articulated aspirations um, in the Declaration of Universal Human Rights, for example, you see those aspirations exactly. there. But those are not new aspirations. That the American Constitution has unrealized aspirations. Like you can, the the, the French Revolution had their their unrealized aspirations that talked about every every person, every you know, and and and, and uh, that that is uh, um, in in some cases uh, it speaks to the 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 drafters of those documents limited sense of who counts as human um in 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 other ways um it uh, th th those are uh, documents with aspirations that uh, are hard to be implemented right so the disappointment with uh with the articulated aspirations for new worlds is something that has different iterations right so um um, it, it uh, in the sixties when we have some in seventies when you get uh, level of, different levels of of, of uh, um, you know uh, uh, a little more equality for a few minoritized groups uh, we'll see that they didn't go as far as we want them to go right mm -hmm. so uh, um, and then as uh, but as a result of that as some of these spaces continue to diversify um, I think that uh, white supremacy in some ways reacts as um, a, a group becomes threatened by their diminishing role in culture and society right so in, so in some ways um, it, it's, it seems to me that uh, that uh, society does not societies do not move forward linearly but the disappointment with broad aspirations for a better world are something that you see happening over and over again um, and, and, and it seems to me that um, despite our defense of democratic institutions, it did not, uh, and of and, and of, of some some people's hope for capitalism, and some people's hope for different kind of uh, different kinds of uh, of, of broadly uh, disseminated structures in our societies. Those structures did not deliver, did not deliver their aspirations, mm. and, and and as we continue to think about different versions of what the world could be. That is a, a a let's go back to the we're great again. When were we great, man? You know, <laughs> I, I mean, let, let's go. In Brazil, I mean, some, some of that happened. Bolsonaro again to mention him again praises dictators, and we had order then, right? We had good public education then. 
right? So uh, um, the, the, it was great for some people, maybe. Dangerous uh, lingo. You know, uh, but, but, uh, uh, but, but not others. And even then, there is an illusion that, uh, that those times were, were, were great. I mean, poor whites struggle throughout, uh, out, even when eluding themselves, uh, thinking that they're superior uh, than other non-white groups that mm-hmm. happen here and happen in Brazil and in different places. So... Um, Perhaps my my pessimism is uh, is showing, um, but uh, but it seems to me that these kinds of of of, uh, of, of social political struggles um, are a part of our reality, and they might change in accent, and they might change in particular goals. Um, but despite the hope of having a world in which they won't exist. Mm. Um, I, I don't think we'll get that. I know it's difficult for me because I look at these large issues and I get so frustrated by the human lifespan because you you can't do or fix all of these issues within one generation. It's so frustrating because results would be really nice. Mm-hmm. So during my time in college, the attitude amongst my peers was a thirst for reconciling some of the mistakes of our past. But I think uh, one of the valuable insights you may be able to provide um, teaching at a um, large institution and seeing a diverse um, amount of students coming from different backgrounds, um, I I was wondering if you could speak towards the hope or possible uh, initiative that young kids may be taking to fix some of these issues or do you see more of that nostalgia factor that you've set you've mentioned of taking our societal concepts back a step to reflect that of our generations prior yeah well thank you for the question i'll, I'll mention a couple of things then i'll see if i address it i mean i, I like uh, um uh, that uh, when that uh, uh, american uh, poet poet wendell berry he says in the in the uh, uh, um, in one of his poems, Mad Farmer's Liberation Front, I think, like that he says, uh, "Be joyful, though you've considered all the facts." <laughs> uh, or, or, or reminds me of Cornel West, who says that uh, he's not an optimist, but he's hopeful. Right? <laughs> uh, so, uh, um, so uh, well, uh, let me tell you a story that just happened, and then I'll, mm. uh, I'll try to give a more conceptual answer. Uh, I was teaching my last. So I'm teaching 120 undergrads this this semester, um, two classes of 60, roughly. Um, and um, in one of those sessions, when, before we went into the break, and it's a diverse you know, group of students, not as diverse as, as I would like them to be in the, my particular setting, but nevertheless. Um, and um, um, I, I, uh, I told them uh, so for those of you who celebrate Thanksgiving, I hope you have a good season. But if you are Native American, and then a- as I was about to say something, a student yelled, uh, no, I said, if you are Native American, I, I wish you have. And then and I was going to speak, somebody yelled, freedom! <laughs> um, and uh, um, I, I, I was like... Uh, um, uh, Positively surprised by that, um, that uh, that there is a sense that there is 
something deeply wrong in the way in which we live our life, in the way in which we normalized, right? In that, in that same class, I had talked to them about uh, 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 what the, we talked, it was it's a question on the Christian heritage. Um, and uh, and I, I, I talked about Walter Rauschenbusch, who says uh, that uh, uh, a social gospel movement, uh, and, and he says that a good system make, make no, a bad system make good people do bad things. Mm. But a good system make bad people do good things. Right? And all, I, I talk to the students, all of them think they're good, but they're all supporting sweatshops somewhere. Right? So the kind of systems that, that, that we live, and this is a kind of unpack with them, the kind of systems in which we live um, make even folks like you or me who might think of ourselves as being good um, performing bad acts just to live our daily lives because it's so deep, uh, it's so deeply ingrained in some of the evils of our system and so globally connected and interdependent that uh, that is difficult to, uh, you know, to, to, to not be bad with it, mm. um, either consciously or not. And they are, they are different kind of, there's a spectrum there, right? But, but I think the point was well taken. And we had uh, many discussions with the students about the, the little that can be done. So I, I am hopeful in, in, in the sense that there seems to be, in the generation that I am uh, in conversation with anyway, a sense that there is something deeply wrong with, with the world uh, a, a will to change it, um, and um, a curiosity about the mechanisms that could be productive in executing change. Um, what I am not sure exists is the kind of sustained commitment um, and awareness uh, that that the the journey is, is long and it is not an easy one mm. so uh, um, I, I am I, what I what it remains to be seen for me um, is um, in, in the going from the, the the awareness of the issues and the will to change what kind of action um, it's take I mean, can be taken and will be taken um, I, that, that that question is a complicated one I think because we are often entangled um, in in ways that uh, that are difficult to shake off, you know. And without organization, without sustained commitment, without good leadership, without ability to uh, to 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 um, uh, form strong coalitions, without uh, the willingness to speak to both sides of the issue, when, which in a world that it's increasingly polarized, we have less of. Um, I think that the, the the changing of the things that we can change becomes become less likely. So, but I am hopeful. I'm mm. just not optimistic. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Doctrine of Christian Discovery, recorded at the 2023 Religious Origins of White Supremacy Conference at Syracuse University in New York. This podcast is produced in collaboration between Good Faith Media, Syracuse University, and the Indigenous Values Initiative. I'm Tanner Randall for Good Faith Media. Our executive producers are Mitch Randall of Good Faith Media, Philip P. Arnold, and Sandy Big Tree of the Indigenous Values Initiative, and Adam D.J. Brett of Syracuse University and the American Indian Law Alliance. 
Our producer is Cliff Vaughn. Our editor is David Pang. Our music comes from Pond5. Production assistance provided by the American Indian Law Alliance. To learn more, go to doctorandofdiscovery.org.